Thank you, Josh and Katie. Thank you for your leadership. Great to be with you all. I went to boarding school when I was seven years old. My parents were missionaries in Western Kenya and there wasn't a good schooling option for us there. And I enjoyed the experience all the way through till I graduated high school, but the school was a British school, so I had uh, rugby and I learned Latin in fourth grade and interacted with the Boy Scouts and music and drama. It was a full-orbed experience, which I'm really grateful for. I would go to school for three months, and then I would go home for one month. And as great as school was, it wasn't home. And at the end of that three-month term, I would sit on the stone steps at the external terrace of the school, and I would fix my eyes on the corner of the dirt road around which bend my father would come in an old beat-up Peugeot 504 with a roof rack and a license plate of KVF 703. I can still remember the license plate. And my little seven-year-old heart was just longing to go home. School was great, but it wasn't home. All through the centuries, men and women have come to a realization that school's great, but it's not home. This earth has some joys and some pleasures and some things that are good, but it's not what we were created for, and it's not where we belong. And the further you go in life, you will experience the depth and depravity of sin, the brokenness of being human. Some of you know it already. The pain that you've experienced, the abuse that's been incurred, the loneliness, the bondages. You know even already that this world is broken and that we were created for something that is pure and holy and true and eternal. We were created to rejoice forever in the presence of Jesus. We don't belong here. The Bible says we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're strangers. Paul knew this and he said in Philippians, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I don't know which one I'll choose, he said, but I do know this, to be with Christ is far, far better. So what do we do with this longing? What do we do with this understanding that we're broken? Well, men and women who've gone ahead of us, who would sing the songs of Zion, sing about heaven. I love the old gospel songs, don't judge me, but it's because they talk about heaven so much. I long to be in the presence of Jesus, not only because of the sin and brokenness out there. I know what's in here. I know what's in here. And I know how I struggle with my own selfishness and pride and lust and whatever it might be over and over again. I just want to be free from that. And I long for the day when the trumpet sounds and the sky recedes and the Lord descends. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, I will be changed. I will be like him and ever with the Lord. I long for that day with all of my being. But how do we get there? 
Well, as I said, men and women through the centuries have been longing along with us for that deliverance. The whole creation, the Bible says, groans for the liberation of the sons and daughters of men. Where mortality is swallowed up in life, there is this general longing. Well, they went to the scriptures and they read verses like Matthew 24, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst all the nations as a witness, and then the end will come. All right, we get it. The way home, the path home, is through the nations. And so all we have to do, according to the Bible, is take the gospel to all the different people groups of earth, and then Jesus will come. But there's a problem. We're weak, we're poor, we're powerless. So how on earth do we, in our brokenness, our limited state, how do we take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Why? So Jesus will come and we go home. How do we do that? Go back to the scriptures, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Aha! Jesus, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Why? So we can preach the gospel to all the unreached people groups on earth. Why? So we can go home. So tonight, what I want to do, I want to reflect on what are the essential elements of what we need to do in order, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can preach the gospel to all the people groups on earth so we can go home. And simplistically what I see in the scriptures is that as Jesus said, we are sent like he was sent. John chapter 20, verse 21, he said, as the Father sends me, so send I you. Well, how was Jesus sent? Three simple things I'm going to share with you tonight. Number one, we are sent to fight as Jesus fought. Number two, we are sent to bleed as Jesus bled. And number three, we are sent to pray as Jesus prayed. So let's look at those things together. Number one, we are sent to fight as Jesus fought. In Mark chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's an interesting story because I don't know what your view is of gentle Jesus, but he goes into the temple, and if I can say it, Jesus goes postal, right? He's knocking tables over, he's throwing merchandise around, he's whipping animals and getting them out of the temple, and we don't know exactly if Jesus beat up on people, but we do know this. The text says he drove them out of the temple. Now, I live in the Middle East, all right, and I know what Middle East merchants are like, and if you can crowd, imagine a crowded Cairo market that's full of Arabs selling, do you think it would work if you went into that crowded, chaotic scene and said, oh, excuse me, please, this isn't appropriate. Would you take your merchandise and exit stage left? You think that would work with a bunch of wild Arabs? That's not going to work. So I don't know what happened exactly, but I do know Jesus got violent, he got visceral, he got physical. He drove them and their wares out of the temple. Why? This is the angriest we see Jesus, gentle Jesus. Why is he so angry? Why is Jesus so ticked off that he's actually getting physical and evicting people from the temple. Well, that aspect of the temple mount is called the court of the Gentiles. It was designed by God for the nations to come to Jerusalem and meet Jehovah. But when Jesus walks into that, it's the Passion Week, the last week of his life, he sees that the place that God had intended for the nations to meet him 
has become a marketplace and the great missions heart of Jesus burst, he says, no, and then he quotes Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56 says this, Don't let the foreigners say there's no place for me in God's house. Don't let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For even in my house you'll be granted a name better than that of sons and daughters. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So what we see here is what I am terming, and I want you to hear my definition before you judge my term, apostolic nasty. Turn to your neighbor and say apostolic nasty. <laughs> All right, I do not mean by nasty something that is disgusting. I don't mean something that's gross. What I mean by this, here's my definition of apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. You with me? A consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all peoples. It ticked Jesus off that the place designed for the nations to meet him had become a marketplace. And he does something about it that's physical and visceral. He cleanses his own house. You know the name Tom Brady? Do you know the name Michael Jordan? Do you know the name Kobe Bryant? Do you know the name Muhammad Ali? All those guys were champions, or are champions, but I want to say that they weren't better athletes than those they competed against. When you get to the professional level, everybody's a good athlete, everybody works out, everybody practices, everybody has good coaches, everyone has good nutritionists, you all have the same schedule, you all have the same apparatus that you're able to employ. What made those guys different and drove them to those different championships was that they had a little bit of nasty in them, right? They weren't just going to beat you in the championship game. They were going to beat you in practice. They were going to beat you in tiddlywinks. They were going to get in line at the bus and get the better seat than you. It didn't matter what it was. They were going to beat you, and they were going to enjoy beating you, and they were going to beat you tomorrow and the next day. They had something nasty about them, something edgy. Okay. What I think we need in this day and age, if we all want to go home, is a little bit of apostolic nasty that gets ticked off at anything that retards the glory of Jesus amongst the nations, starting with your own temple. What is it? I'm not asking you to get mean and crotchety with other people. Jesus cleansed his own house. Jesus cleansed his temple because it wasn't serving his purpose amongst the nations. So what's in your heart, what's in your temple that is retarding the glory of Jesus amongst the nations. What secret sin or pride or laziness is there in your mind and heart that restricts what Jesus wants to do amongst unreached people? You need to get nasty on that thing. You need to get visceral. You need to get radical. You need to go after that thing. You need to knock over some tables and lash out at some of that stuff, and it might not be bad stuff. Nothing wrong with the sheep. Nothing wrong with an offering in the temple. That's what the temple was supposed to do. But maybe there's some good stuff that just needs to get kicked out of your heart and life. So there's room for the nations to come to the Lord. Another example of this, I think, is Paul. 
as far as apostolic nasty. We know that before his conversion, Paul was rough and rugged, dragging Christians off, putting them in prison, consenting to the death of Stephen, etc. Right? We know he's a pretty rough figure. Then the Damascus Road experience, and Paul is converted. My premise is, even though he got saved, he didn't lose his nasty. Why do I say that? Book of Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you leave so soon the gospel of grace? You might as well go the whole way and emasculate yourself. That's in the Bible, right, Josh? So don't get mad at me. That's what the Bible says. Or he says to Peter, I rebuked you to your face. Or he says to the leader of the Sanhedrin, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Or he says to John Mark, you're off the team. You're not coming with us. You don't cut it. Or he says about guys misbehaving in the church, turn them over to Satan for the deliverance of their soul. Says about himself, I would rather that I could be condemned if my brethren, the Israelites, would be saved. This is not a balanced dude, right? He hasn't lost his fiery edge. He says, I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he hasn't been named in Romans. And then in Corinthians, he says, I'm going to the regions beyond you. And he's thinking, where is the gospel not gone? And what does it take to take the gospel there? I'm going to do anything that is required. And I'm going to do it with all of my life and all of my passion. And I don't care who's in my way, who goes with me or not. This is what I'm going to do. Why? Back to Philippians so that he could go home and be with Christ, which was far, far better. I'm simply saying this. If you want to go home, you've got to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit with an intensity that is consecrated and fixated on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. You might be saying, oh, well, that's Paul or that's Jesus. I'm just a little simple handmaiden of the Lord. I was in Muscat, Oman, sitting in the house of Jeremy and Emily Owen. Got up one morning to go to breakfast. I walk into the kitchen and Emily's little daughter was about a year old, sitting in a high chair, Cheerios stuck on her forehead, worship music playing, sunbeam coming into the window. Everything was pretty and pristine and cute. It looked like a good housekeeping photo shoot. And I looked at this cute little domestic scene, little mother, little toddler, and in her elegant cursive with a marker on the ceramic tile, Emily had written, it's war time. It's war time. It's time to go to war for the souls of men and women in Muscat, Oman. Apostolic nasty is for all of us. It's not carnality, it's not being a grumpy smurf, but it's saying, I'm gonna have a consecrated edginess that fixates on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all nations. Archibald Forder in the 1890s went as a missionary to the Arabian Peninsula. He didn't have another missionary within 2,500 miles of him. He got there and for three days they locked him and his wife in a cave with no water. He served for six months and he says, after six months I came home, walked into my cave and there was my wife lying dead. He walked 250 miles to find the nearest post office to send a letter home that his wife had died. He stayed there for another 18 years. Eventually, he gets remarried. 
his single co-workers die. Then he goes on a trip for six weeks. He comes home. And I said, on a returning home from six weeks of ministry in the interior, on one stretch for five days, I crossed the desert with Bibles, had no water. We survived it somehow through a miracle. God sent a wonderful supply of drinking water. And he says, I walked into my home, and there's my 10-year-old son dead in the arms of my second wife. And then he said, it was the best six weeks of my life. Not that he was callous about the passing of his son, but because unknowing that his son was even sick, he'd spent six weeks in the deserts of Arabia taking the gospel to those who never heard. He went back to America and he's telling all these stories and then he ended with this. I would rather die desolate and alone in the sands of Arabia than in the comfort of an American bed. That's apostolic nasty. He loved his wife. He loved his children. But he was fixated on the worth of Jesus and the glory amongst all peoples. You want to go home? You want to be with Jesus? You want to be free from the curse that's without and within? You're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. You're going to have to have a little bit of apostolic nasty. The second thing that you're all going to have to participate in is we're going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. The United Arab Emirates, you probably know Dubai or Abu Dhabi better, only became a nation in 1972. Before that, it was known as the Trucial State, or one of the Trucial States, from the word truce that these elders of tribes had made with England. In 1960, in this area, a married couple who were both medical doctors named the Kennedys decided to go for a vision and missions trip. They got in an old used Land Rover and they drove out into the desert into an oasis area called Al Ain. It has a catchment of about 1,500 people, all Muslims, and there they found a woman who had been in labor for three days. She hadn't been able to give birth and so they diagnosed that her bladder was so distended with urine that the baby couldn't pass. They didn't have any of their medical instruments. So Dr. Kennedy, the man, popped open the hood of that old Land Rover, found the smallest diameter hose that he could in the engine, cut it out of the engine, made his own catheter, inserted it into the woman, drained her bladder of urine, and then his wife delivered a healthy baby. The Sheikh, the leader of that tribe, was so impressed that he had saved, they had saved the life of this woman and the baby, he said, I want you to start a clinic here. I want you to save the life of our women and our children. So they did. When a Muslim baby is born, you might know, they're gathered up into the arms of the nursemaid and the Shahada is whispered in their ear, the Islamic confession of faith. I testify there's no God but God and Muhammad is the prophet of God. Well, as Dr. Kennedy, the woman, is giving birth to all of these Muslim children, she takes them up in her arms and whispers in their ears the name of Jesus and dedicates those children to the Lord. One of the very first babies that she delivered, delivered in that clinic was named Muhammad, the son of the sheikh who had given them permission to start that clinic. The sheikh's name was Zaid. Sheikh Zaid is the founder of the United Arab Emirates. Today, that little baby boy, Muhammad bin Zaid, is the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. 
Last year, he was voted the most powerful Arab in the world. He is the guy that is behind all of the tolerance in the Emirates. He has discipled the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He has pushed from behind the scenes for the Ibrahimic peace accords with Israel. He has been a person of peace. When he was born, Dr. Kennedy prayed over him in the name of Jesus. And as is their custom, visited the home at week one and month two and six months and told Bible stories to his parents. And this man is being used to change the Arab world because of Dr. Kennedy. One time she was doing a surgery. The woman she was operating on began to hemorrhage. She scrubbed out, donated her own blood, scrubbed back in, saved the woman's life, delivered the baby. At the beginning, this clinic had no generators, had no refrigeration, and so the staff would list their blood type on a piece of paper, posted it to the wall, and then whenever blood was needed, they would donate. And Dr. Kennedy, the woman, was O negative, the universal donor. So she gave more blood than anyone else. In fact, the testimony about her life is this, that she gave blood so often, she lived anemic. So here's a doctor, a missionary doctor, in the middle of the desert of Arabia, bleeding as Jesus bled, giving her physical blood with such regularity that she lived weak and sick and anemic so that she could pray over these babies in the name of Jesus, so that some of them would grow up and change the world, so that by faith many of them would come to Jesus themselves and we would see them in heaven. We're going to have to bleed as Jesus bled if we want to go home. But you shouldn't think of that as a duty or as even a sacrifice. Why? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, we have the classic expression of Paul where he said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And what did he say next? And the fellowship of his sufferings, conformity to his death, so that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul realized something that I hope you gather and apprehend at the spirit level. It's simply this. There's a knowledge of God that can only be grasped when we join him in suffering for the redemption of the world. What is the context of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? Why did Christ suffer for the sins of the world? And Paul said, I want to know that. I want to know Christ in that way. I want to participate in the agonies of laying down life for the good of the nations, for there is a depth of the knowledge of God found there that cannot be experienced in an air-conditioned room in America. It cannot be experienced amongst the found. But only when we leave that which is comfortable and when we go to that place that is difficult and it costs us something, not because we're foolish or stupid or arrogant or have hubris, but because we have sacrificed with Jesus for the redemption of the nations, we will experience him in a way that we cannot experience him any other way. We should long for that. That is privilege. That's not sacrifice to know Christ in that way? That's what I'm talking about when we say 
bleed as Jesus bled. I'll give you another example of this from the scriptures in Acts chapter 16. It's the story of the church being planted in Philippi. First Lydia gets saved. They meet her at the river and then move the prayers to her house. And then a, a demon gets cast out of a servant girl. The magistrates in that city of Philippi get upset because the merchants say our hope of profit is gone. They consign Paul to prison. Then an earthquake happens and the Philippian jailer and all his household get saved. At the end of that, because of the earthquake and everything that's gone, the magistrates who had put Paul in prison after they beat him, they plead with him to leave the prison and leave the city, but Paul refuses if you read that chapter and says, no, you put me in prison, you come and get me out. Because here's what had happened. By Roman law, you can't try or you can't condemn a Roman before the trial. But when Paul gets on the other side of that earthquake, he says, I'm a Roman and you beat me and put me in prison without trial. That was wrong. You come apologize to me and get me out yourself. The question for us is simply this. If Paul could play the Roman card, why did he do that after they beat him and after they put him in prison? Why didn't he do it before? He didn't have to be beaten. He didn't have to go to prison. Why did he do that? Why did he insist on that after all of that? I think the clue is given for us in the last verse of Acts 16, where on the way out of town, Paul goes to Lydia's house. What's going on there? Well, in the Roman society, you had a patron-client understanding. The patron has the power, he grants a privilege to the client, and the client obeys him and serves him. That's how Roman Empire worked. At the beginning of the story, the magistrates have the power, and they put Paul in prison. At the end of the story, there's a power inversion, and now Paul has the power. Why? Because the magistrates broke Roman law, right? All Paul has to do is report on them to the governor and say, these turkeys, they didn't give me due process. They beat me a Roman. They put me in prison. And what happens to those magistrates? They lose their job. They lose their status. They lose their honor. They lose their income, right? So they come cap in hand to Paul. Oh, we're so sorry. We didn't know. Please just leave town. So when Paul goes to Lydia's house, now there's this power inversion. Now he's the patron. They're the client. All he has to do is report on them to the governor. So he goes to Lydia's house. And by that act, he's transferring his status onto her. And he's saying, this lady and this church is with me. I'm leaving town. But if you lift one finger against them, I'm coming back and you're toast and you're done. So make sure you take good care of her. And then he leaves. Wouldn't have happened if he would have played his Roman card before he went to prison. And whether he understood all of that strategically and saw that or not, for sure we know that the Philippian jailer, if Paul plays his privilege card, doesn't get saved, no earthquake, no family members in heaven, right? So Paul forego privilege for the good of Lydia, the church, the Philippian jailer, and the family. So the question for you is this. What privilege are you willing to lay down for the good of the nations, so the gospel goes to all peoples, so Jesus comes and we all go home? Maybe it's the right and the privilege to stay here in America and earn a good wage and be near mom and dad and have free babysitters. 
all the conveniences of the country within which you were born or immigrated to and now enjoy. No one denies that you have that privilege or that right. But are you willing to lay that down so we can all go home? Are you willing to give up the right to security and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, those inalienable rights? Are you willing to lay those down so that the Lydia's of the world can be saved and the Philippian jailer families of the world can be in heaven? Are you willing to lay that privilege down so we can all go home? We're going to have to fight as Jesus fought. We're going to have to bleed as Jesus bled. And thirdly, we're going to have to pray as Jesus prayed. It's interesting to me, Jesus prayed early, he prayed often, he prayed about big decisions. But I find it just kind of staggering that Jesus, who is God on the earth, prayed. Have you ever wrestled with that, that God prays? More than that, Hebrews 7 verse 25 says that Jesus now ascended into heaven, all authority, all power, ever liveth to make intercession for us. In other words, the ascended Lord, God on the throne, is praying for you and for me. That's just staggering, isn't it? That God on the earth prayed, that God on the throne prays. Well, the implication, I think, is obvious. If God prays, what should we mere mortals be doing? We should be praying as well, right? But we don't always feel like praying. A few weeks ago, months ago now, I was on a prayer walk in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where I live, and I was having a conversation with the Lord Jesus. And I was saying to him, I don't really feel like praying. Not only do I not feel like praying, I don't actually have any zeal or any passion for lost people right now. And this is a problem, because I write the books and I preach the sermons and I try and encourage other people to love the lost and abide with Jesus. And Jesus, right now, I'm just not feeling it. I don't have the emotion. I don't have the passion. I don't have the zeal. I just, I'm not feeling it. I don't have, I don't care if Arabs die and go to hell right now. I just don't want to pray. I just, I'm tired. I want to run away. I want to go work at McDonald's somewhere and just get off of the pressure train. And so I'm having this conversation with the Lord. And he brought to mind my wife and my relationship with my wife. And my wife likes tiny houses. You know what those are? You convert a container or a small space to very condensed and economical living. I have no interest in that. <laughs> None at all. So she brings me the Instagram picture of this cute little container. and She's all excited. But because I love my wife, I wrestle my heart to express interest in that tiny house, right? Oh, that's nice, honey. I like it. Good one. Nice. <laughs> I really don't care, but I, because I love her, I try to care. Does that make sense? So the Lord brought that to mind, and so I said to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I don't really have passion for prayer right now, and I don't really care much about lost people. I'm sorry. That's, how, that's where I'm at. But... I know you do, and I love you. So because it's important to you, it's going to be important to me. Josh announced a prayer walk. You might not have any excitement for that. You might not have any passion for that. You know what? 
doesn't matter. It's important to Jesus. Because you love him, can you wrestle your heart and do what's important to him? Can you do it for Jesus' sake? You might be tired, you might be weary, you might want to do a thousand other things. But Jesus is saying, hey, check out my tiny house. <laughs> and can you say, all right, Jesus, because it's important to you, I'm going to do what needs to be done, whether that's to dial down in prayer, whether that is to cross the, the aisle in my dorm and invite someone to Chi Alpha. I'm not feeling it. I'm not excited about it. I don't have passion for it. But it doesn't matter, Jesus, because I love you and this is important to you, so I'm going to do what's important to you just because I love you. In 1942, World War II, and Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of England, there was a problem because the coal miners went on strike. They wanted more money and they wanted a little more attention. They weren't in the Air Force or the Army or the Navy, and yet if they stopped digging out coal, the war effort would grind to a halt. And so Churchill had a problem and he went and gave a famous speech. And in that speech to the striking coal miners, Churchill essentially said this, we're going to win this war. And when we do, we're gonna have a big old parade. And in that parade, first will come the Air Force who fought off the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. They will receive praise. After them will come the Navy who delivered supplies to all of our colonies around the world so the war effort could continue. They will receive acclaim. And then will come the army who spilt their blood and took the ground and held it for the advancing allies and they also will be cheered. But at the end of all of that will come a band of disheveled men with wrinkled faces and suit all over their arms, the coal miners. And they shall be asked, where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. In the world today, 2021, there are 6 billion people who don't know Jesus. 3.2 billion are in unreached people groups, 6,500 of them. Just in 1985, the numbers were 2 billion people who were without the knowledge of Christ, and 1.5 billion who were unreached. Just by birth rates, we're worse off now than we were in 1985. There's never been a greater need for missionaries amongst unreached people groups. You want to go home? You want to be with Jesus? Something's got to be done. About 3.2 billion people around the world that have never met a Christian, don't have a Bible, don't have access to a church, and don't understand the gospel in their own language. Even so, I want to tell you, like Churchill told the coal miners, we are going to win this war. We are. We read Revelation 7, 9 early. Thank you for that. I love that verse. The promise of scriptures is how it ends, 
language, tribes, cultures, peoples around the throne worshiping Jesus, and the text says a multitude of them. We're going to win this war. By God's grace, I don't know how it's all going to happen, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to win the war, and one day we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to have a big old parade. And first will come those first apostolic fathers. Eleven of them died for Jesus. And then will come the patristic fathers and mothers. And then will come the great Franciscan and Jesuit missionaries who knew the Lord. And then will come the Martin Luthers of the day and the Reformers. And then after that will come the Raymond Lulls who first preached the gospel in the 1100s in Algeria and died for it. And then the Henry Martins who died in Turkey. And then there will come the William Careys and the Hudson Taylors and the great women of faith, the Lilius Trotters and the Lillian Trashers and all these wonderful figures who have taken the gospel to places where it never existed and they will all get their praise. But after that will come a little old grandmother from Dubuque, Iowa who nobody has ever, ever recognized but has been up at 5 a.m. praying that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest field and flipping through her missionary cards and getting out her Operation World and praying about the nations of the world and the unreached people groups and she's going to get a big old cheer. And then will come a little Bantu African girl from the Congo. Nobody knows her name. And she has been faithfully giving her one shilling, her penny, every month, saving whatever she could for the funding of the gospel to go forward. And the angels will both cheer and cry. And then will come a Chinese house pastor who's been incarcerated in solitary confinement for the last 20 years. Nobody's heard from them. But they spent that 20 years in prison praying to the Lord of the harvest that the gospel would cycle back from Jerusalem through the Chinese world and back to where it all started. Oh yes, we're going to win this war. And when that parade happens, we will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And you shall reply, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. For some of you, that means you will go to an unreached people group and spend and be spent for the glory of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, making disciples and planting churches so that Jesus comes and we go home. For others of you, the assignment will be more local. God is going to send you into the marketplace. He will give you the ability to generate wealth. You're going to live sacrificially. And in this way, you will bleed as Jesus bled. Instead of living at the level of your income, you will live as sacrificially as possible, and you will send hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund the work of the gospel around the world. Others of you will be Caiaphal staff, and you will devote your life like Pete and Amy and others, Josh and Katie have been doing. You will raise up a whole generation of disciples that will go out and shake the nations. And however it is, whether it is praying, whether it is training and sending, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's in the pioneer fields, you're going to have soot on your face, your bones will be weary, 
You will be spent for Jesus, but you will be able to answer, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And you shall say, I was deep in the earth with my face to the coal. I fought as Jesus fought. I bled as Jesus bled. And I prayed as Jesus prayed. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? We want to go home because we know we're broken and we know we don't really belong here. And together we sit now on the stone steps of earth and our eyes are fixed on the eastern sky. We're just waiting for our Lord to come and take us home. And we go like our forefathers to the scriptures and we read again Matthew 24, 14. We remember that the path home is through the nations. We know that we're weak just like they were and we go to Acts 1, 8. And we see that the Holy Spirit is given to have power to be his witnesses so that we can preach the gospel to all peoples so that the end will come, so that we can go home because to be with him is far, far better. So we're just gonna take a moment of silent prayer. And in this moment, I want you to reflect and to ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to fight? How do you want me to bleed? And how do you want me to pray? For each of us, that obedience will be different. The geography will vary. But all of us, if we want to go home, must fight, must bleed, and must pray. So would you ask the Holy Spirit now to speak to you about your role? Is that to go to an unreached people group yourself? Is that to go into the marketplace and mobilize and fund? Is that to pray in ways that are extraordinary, sacrificial, and devoted. Lord Jesus, how do you want me to fight? Where do you want me to fight? How do you want me to bleed? And how must I pray? Let's just take a few minutes and let the Holy Spirit speak to us.